This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from our firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. How does when we are born affect how we spend or save? We're here today to understand the answer to that question by discussing three successive generations. Generation X, Millennials, and the youngest of the bunch, Generation Z. I'm joined by Hugo Scott Gall, my fellow Xer, and the young guns, Lindsay Drucker-Mann and Christopher Wolf of Goldman Sachs Research. Hugo, Lindsay, Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks Glad to be here. So to kick things off, let's talk about why you view generational research as important. Hugo, I'll direct this one to you since you lead the firm's thematic research team. Are generational differences real? Why do we pay attention to them? And what can this research tell us? They're important because they can help you understand how and why consumption differs amongst age groups. It's very important to know that Xers, those born between 1965 and 1980, and as you helpfully pointed out, Jake, I'm an Xer, are not consuming in the same way as the baby boomers who were born between 46 and 64 did. So Gen Z, again, and who come after the millennials, are not going to consume in the same way as the millennials. So if you can understand what shapes each of these generations' attitudes and beliefs, then you can understand their likely consumption behavior. And if you think more broadly, there's a question around what sort of leaders they will be when their time comes. Knowing the difference between a cautious exer and a perhaps more carefree boomer is important when you're thinking about CEOs and their strategies. But the bottom line here is that understanding generations helps a lot when it comes to the level and mix of consumption. Because what a 25-year-old, say 30 years ago, thought was the most important thing in the world to own, which is probably a car, is not what a 25-year-old today thinks is the most important thing in the world to own. It may not even be a thing. It could actually be an experience. So there's obviously a lot of attention on millennials, and we'll get there. But Chris, you said it's just as important to understand Generation Z, Gen Z, those born after 1998, as it is to understand millennials. Why is that? What are the key things investors, businesses need to know about this generation and its habits? A Gen Zer born in 2005 in the U.S. has been raised under a vastly different set of circumstances and experiences than a millennial that was born in 1985. For starters, Gen Z is even more diverse. They're America's most diverse generation to date. The Census Bureau tells us that by the year 2020, more than half of kids in the U.S. will belong to a minority race or ethnic group. So diversity in the traditional sense of the word is becoming the norm, and it's happening with Gen Z. And at the same time, Gen Z also holds a more positive view of the rising ethnic diversity in America than generations before them did. You know, we know that Gen Z is also more financially conservative. They're more debt averse. They're more focused on financial outcomes. And then lastly, I think anytime you're talking about America's youngest generation, you have to be thinking about their use of technology. And this is a generation that was born device in hand and that will live in a digitally connected Wi-Fi enabled world from the cradle to the grave. They know nothing else. And that's how they learn, how they spend money, or how they influence others to spend money, currently most likely their parents, how they interact, socialize, and ultimately influence and inspire each other is all a reflection of that. And so today with Gen Z, we're talking about a cohort of more than 70 million people that we know very little about. And I think the laziest assumption that you can make is that they're just young millennials. Lindsay, there's no dispute that everyone's paying attention to millennials and has been for at least a little while. What are the big ways you see them exercising their influence over the landscape, and how do you see companies now responding to that? To start with, there's the sheer size of the demographic. You've got 
over 90 million consumers strong and entering their peak spending years, but also entering important stage in their lives in the workforce. And so we see them having important influence on companies from the inside as key talent, but also from the outside as consumers voting with their dollars. Beyond their heft, there's this element of social change that we see characteristic of millennials where they're simply getting married later and starting to have families later, taking the opportunity to live in their 20s and really invest in themselves, travel and forge communities. None of this is necessarily all that shocking. People have been getting married later for hundreds of years now. But nonetheless, there's a dynamic that really does create a group of consumers that has a lot more time to think about and to indulge themselves as individuals before transitioning to family units. Lastly, the most exciting part of the story is clearly this very rapid and transformational technological change. We're talking about the obvious, the internet, mobile phones, social media, and it's this technological component that truly lights a fire under the story and out of which we see a whole host of really exciting behaviors emerge. And I'll give you a few examples of those behaviors. First of all, a generation of researchers. Millennials are not required to take things at face value the way that older generations may have had to because with the internet, the barriers to access information have been absolutely upended. And so one of the ways that we see that manifest is gravitating towards brands that are truly authentic, gravitating towards products where there is a real clear story of origin, whether it's craft beer or artisanal honey. We see for millennials the ability to access what's behind the curtain here and what is this really about as something that's pretty important. Another behavior, ratings and reviews. It used to be 20 years ago that advertisers would focus on the expert opinion, the doctor Consumer telling reports you. Or, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. The doctor telling you what kind of toothpaste you should use or the testimonial, which we know wasn't really an authentic testimonial, was handpicked of a consumer who was saying exactly what the brand wanted you to hear about the specific virtues of their product. Now we see consumers really focused on the ratings and opinions of absolute strangers who may not have any authority in a product whatsoever. One last thing I note in terms of behavior is that while in today's day and age, everybody, all generations are spending lots of time online, millennials are a whole lot more focused on giving you their opinion online. They spend a whole lot more time posting. They spend a whole lot more time uploading videos, making reviews themselves. So we have a very vocal and opinionated group of consumers. To answer your question on companies' responses, today we see a wholehearted embrace that this millennial consumer is exhibiting different behaviors and big capital investment to try to get out in front of where they think these consumers are going next. So to give you a few examples, we see massive investments in organic food at grocers, traditional grocers, places like Walmart, where not just organic food, but organic food that fits the criteria of having a really accessible price point. We see significant investments in omnichannel and online. We see big consumer companies making large acquisitions. So as you think about the combination of the consumer pull, where the millennial is taking consumption, but also the big push behind corporations investing in it, those are two important catalysts for what we think is going to be pretty profound change. So working our way up the age ladder, as it were, Hugo, why Gen X? Do they still matter? We don't hear much about them anymore, all the millennials, buzz, Gen Z buzz. But you've said they're just as important at this point. Why is that? 
Well, they're important because the average age of an exa is somewhere in their mid-40s, which is pretty close to where the sweet spot of consumption lies, where people spend the most. So Gen X has always been a forgotten generation. They never had a lot That's of love. the X. Yeah, well, they were named after the millennials. That tells you how relatively unimportant they were, which is unfortunate given they are sitting in the sweet spot of consumption. They are not a big focus for the advertising industry, but they make up somewhere between 25 to 30% of consumption in the US. And it's pretty clear that they don't and can't consume like the boomers who went before them. So if you're a company who has a meaningful percentage of your revenue coming from selling to people in this sort of age band, let's say sort of 35 through to 55, you need to know that not only are there fewer Gen X because there was quite a big fall in birth rates in the 60s, but they also have less to spend. You've said the group is somewhat scarred from living through two big crises, the financial crisis of 2007-2008 and the dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s. How has that affected their spending? The very short answer is it's impacted them a lot. Xs are undersaved for their assignments, so they have to try and spend less. They have to save more. When they do spend, they're very concerned with value for money, and they're less hung up on some of the status symbols that the boomers prioritize. So they spend less on cars than the boomers did. Our analysts estimate they spend around 3% of their income on cars versus the boomers 5%. They are more likely to use low-cost and low-risk mutual fund products than any other generation. And they have been, they've been unlucky. And uh, let's not be too hard on them. They've been unlucky with asset price cycles. Some of them are likely to have dipped their toes into the equity market for the first time in the late 1990s. We all know what happened that next. That didn't work out so well. That didn't work out so well. So look, that, that was bad luck number one. Bad luck number two is it's the mid-2000s. We're starting family. We need to buy a family home. Well, our loan-to-value ratio is higher than in previous generations, but we need to do it. We're starting a family. So you know, we all know what happened next, circa 2007, eight. That didn't go so well. So their hit to net wealth was greater than anything the boomers or silent generation experienced before them. So they are undoubtedly scarred, and I think rationally so, by these two big drawdowns in asset values. Another way of looking at this is that from age 30 to 40, so when Xs were 30 to 40 and when boomers were 30 to 40, the S&P 500 went up nearly four times for the boomers, but only two times for Gen X. So if you assume retirement at 65 years, which may well be optimistic these days, Exes only have 20 years left to make up the shortfall. So that doesn't bode well for how much they can kind of grow their share of consumption. Yeah, particularly at a time when boomers are selling down their assets and putting a lot of downward pressure on markets. But millennials and Gen Zers also live through these crises, but at different points in their lives. Are we seeing those generations become more financially conservative, Chris? I do think that we're seeing signs that Gen Z is more financially conservative than generations before them, and probably most notably than millennials. We know that amongst Gen Z's top concerns are the rising cost of college and being saddled with too much student loan debt. This is a generation that wants to achieve financial independence while avoiding many of the pitfalls that may have hindered generations before them. I also think it's important to recognize that an individual's views and attitudes towards money and finances are not only shaped by their own experiences in their own lifetime, but like anything else in life, parents will pass down their perspectives to their kids. And so you have to keep in mind that Gen Z, by and large, is being raised by Gen X. And Hugo was just talking about how Gen X has endured two very tough economic slowdowns during some of their prime earning years. And I'd add to his comments another stat, which is the fact that today there are still more Gen Xers 
underwater on their mortgage than any other generation. On top of that, Gen Z is also acutely aware of some of the financial struggles that many millennials have faced. So in that context, the notion that Gen Z, despite their relative lack of income today or or lack of experience with managing finances, the fact that they're showing some early indications of skewing more conservative financially is actually not very surprising to me. And one of the best stats that I came across in all my research that I think sort of sums it up was that 60% of Gen Z believes a lot of money to be evidence of success, and success sort of being a loosely defined, intentionally open-ended phrase there. And that compares to just 44% of millennials when they were the same age. It shows that this is a generation that's just laser-focused on the financial consequences of their decisions in setting themselves up for financial independence. I think we can comfortably say that millennials learn some good lessons from the financial crisis. And as we see them now in the early stages of their adulthood, making smarter decisions, being more conservative with their own balance sheets, less inclined to take on debt, less inclined to use credit cards. As it relates to some of these sort of big ticket purchases, it's not that millennials want to stay at home forever but they're smart about taking the opportunity to save, and then finally, when they have enough of a nest egg built, going ahead and buying a home. But in the meantime, they're spending money on experiences, and to that generation ahead of them, or the generations ahead of them, that sometimes looks frivolous. You know, They're not investing in, whether it makes sense or not, a car, a home. They're spending money on a lot of things that older generations would consider sort of luxuries. Sure, absolutely, and I think that that speaks to this idea of taking your 20s to really invest in yourself. But as you kind of stack up what your personal P&L looks like post a home and post a car versus if you decided to take a trip and experience and, you know, rented an apartment on Airbnb and traveled in a way that was more affordable, you just don't have the same economic effect. So absolutely, we see where areas where millennials are willing to spend. But overall, they're not levering themselves up to make their dollars go further, they're being much smarter, much more conservative about their balance sheets. But I will say there's one area where we see from a consumption perspective, important change, which is I don't have as much money to spend on myself, or I'm not thinking about being as extravagant on what I'm spending, but I'm going to make my dollars work harder for me. And so as it relates to retail, this idea of showrooming or applying different apps or different websites to help you find the absolute lowest price that you can buy something for or being patient waiting for something to go on sale before you actually do buy it. Other things that we see ultimately being pretty deflationary for some important categories. I was going to say, does anything ever sell at retail price anymore? There's fewer and fewer things that are selling at full retail price. I covered the retail stocks, the apparel stocks, and it's a huge challenge for mall-based retailers and many other retailers is that the consumer is conditioned and smarter about sitting and waiting for that right kind of a deal. Let's talk a little bit more about education. Historically, higher levels of education meant increasing earning potential for people over the course of their careers. Lately, we've seen tuition costs skyrocket and wages be more or less stagnant. Hugo, you wrote about the trade-offs there. How is that changing equation affecting the way people think about investing in education? If you can decompose U.S. CPI, U.S. inflation, over the last 15 years, education stands out as the one cost that has 
gone up every day of every week of every month of every year. Overall, CPI inflation is up 1.4 times in that period, whereas education on its own is up 2.3 times. So it's a massive increase in cost. So if you are an exeter, you are spending more on your children from an education point of view, partly because you don't want to ignore them in the way that maybe you felt your parents did, that actually exeters are being much more active parents investing more heavily in their children. And secondly, they are facing an inflationary price effect, which means they have no choice but to pay more. So I think one of the things that is beginning to happen is that on the basis that that which cannot continue won't, the rising cost of college relative to wages means that something at some point will have to change. Now, is that that fewer people go to college or is it that actually how you consume education changes? Are we going to see innovations around distributing content more broadly, using the fact that everyone has access to technology so that the fact you can distribute more broadly means that are you going to see academics sort of sell their content online outside of the university system? Are you going to see a greater penetration of the MOOCs, the massive online learning courses? That phrase has been around for a while. A lot of universities have innovated in the space, but has it really taken off as a substitute for traditional college and traditional forms of learning? So far it hasn't because I guess there are two things at play here. One is that you could argue that the signal from the education system right now is at least the least bad, that it is telling employers something pretty clear, that this person has been to this college and graduated. That is a helpful system for employers to interpret. And secondly, there hasn't really been, I would argue, yet an alternative to that. You are seeing certainly some of the tech companies developing their own ways of assessing talent and skill, that they are not necessarily relying on the tertiary education signal. And so they are maybe thinking about how do we do our own skills-based testing. And then secondly, at some point, I think the education bundle probably does change so you can consume parts of it without necessarily having to go to college or at least go to college for as long. And so it seems that if you have something which is so important, which is clearly education and skills and the acquisition of them, that is costing increasing amounts relative to the return, that there will be changes. The big change will be when employers say, you know what, we will use a different way of assessing talent and skill. And that's when maybe the education, overall education sector feels some disruption. Millennials are also at an important milestone. They're becoming parents. Lindsay, you've spent a lot of time researching what you call millennial moms. How are their spending habits changing after they have kids? And what were some of the most interesting things you found as you looked at these new moms? One thing that we notice is that in terms of parenting and decision-making, not surprisingly, these consumers are relying on their social communities and these new tools that have developed to help them be better parents. But also we see them trying to spend their dollars smarter, as we talked about before. But it's not that they're not willing to pay premiums for things that are important to them. And we see this in things like organic foods and organic and natural cleaning supplies and laundry detergents. We're seeing those as important areas where there's strong growth. I'll give you another example. One of my favorite examples as I think about millennial moms is what's happened in packaged baby food. Packaged baby food sales over the last five years or so have come under extreme pressure, down in excess of 30%. We've seen a lot of challenges with per capita consumption among consumers for packaged baby food. Now, as you think about packaged food... So that product that survived for years and years and years, generation after generation, is transforming dramatically now. Absolutely. And as you think about why packaged food has been an important component of consumption, it's the convenience that it brings, right? You're a mom and you're trying to feed your family and you rely on packaged food as opposed to fresh food, which takes a lot longer to prepare in order to deliver that requirement to your family. There are very few other moments where a woman is as 
stressed or pressed for time as when she's got a screaming infant who wants food. And so as you think about how critical your packaged baby food is in delivering those things to the mom, it's very important. However, she now today desires to make her own baby food because she can see the transparency and knows exactly where it comes from while foregoing all of those benefits of convenience that the packaged baby food gives her because it's that important to her, the transparency and purity of the food that she's giving her child is that much more important to her that she's actually, as we think about the development of consumption and, and the shift towards package, taking a couple steps back from where consumers have been going for many, many decades. We talked throughout this conversation about technology and how it plays a different role for these three groups. Millennials and Gen Zers are called the digital natives. Are we seeing their adoption of a lot of the new trends in buying, sharing, affect older generations today? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's, to me, one of the most exciting aspects of this millennial story, and it's true for Gen Z as well, but is their ability to influence up the age curve and um, this idea that millennials or younger consumers, whether it's in their homes with their parents or in the workforce with their older colleagues, are the curators of technology and the curators of the mentors. new behavior. Sure. Absolutely, yeah. a little bit of reverse mentoring there. And I'll tell you some examples where we see this in retail, for example. We know that younger consumers, specifically your 25 to 34-year-olds, are very active online. They're shopping online more versus within retail. They're shopping online at increasing rates every single year. We see that your 35 to 44-year-olds are about a year or two behind where they were, and your 45 to 54-year-olds are a year or two behind where they were. And every single year, you see this young generation moving further and further up the adoption curve and pulling all of these older generations up with it. So I think that their influence across older generations has been a really important part of the story. I feel like the generational divides are deeper than I would have guessed. But are they really? Are, are the generational divides more pronounced today than they were 20 years ago, Hugo? And how might they look 20 years from now? Well, I think we're in a period of quite fast technological change, certainly as far as individuals' access to technology is concerned. So that means adoption is faster, and therefore differences between generations, I would argue, maybe are quite wide at the moment. I talked about the X's. They're kind of analog-digital hybrids, while the millennials are probably more different to X's than maybe X's were to boomers. But I wonder, and this is maybe a bigger picture of thought, is that as you get more transparency, as everything is preserved into posterity, into eternity, including this podcast, that actually subsequent generations will know a lot more about their predecessors and who went before them. So if our great-great-great-grandchildren are listening to this, they will be able to hear what we thought at the time, probably disagree with much of what we said, but but it'll have a leveling effect in some way. I think that everyone will know a lot more about each other, and therefore you get these spurts of technological change where adoption can be faster amongst younger people. History kind of tells us that young people usually adopt and adapt to new technologies faster. But eventually there's kind of catch-up. So you know, back to Lindsay's point around each sort of age group is getting faster at catching up. The fastest-growing social media penetration in Gen X is actually the older part of Gen X, and Gen X probably have the same social media penetration rate overall as millennials did five years ago. So you have these spurts, but I think the catch-up and the differences ultimately will get much smaller, much narrower. I agree in the sense that, and I think a lot of this comes from Gen X. I mean, there is 60 is the new 40 today, right? You have an older generation that doesn't want to be old and out of the game, and so there is much more of a willingness to adapt and stay relevant 
And as a result, we're seeing older generations and younger generations closer together in many ways than in the past. I also think generational differences are somewhat self-reinforcing. So millennials will have a different parenting style than Gen Xers and boomers did. And when the time comes, Gen Z will have a different parenting style from millennials. So we spoke to this a bit, how Gen X is influencing Gen Z. And I think that will continue as generations evolve. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes this episode of Exchange to Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on October 4th, 2016. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.